thankful for the great job our children's team does each, uh, each morning at Redemption Hill. And I'd like to invite the rest of us to open our copy of God's sufficient and piercing word to the book of James. We'll be in chapter four this morning. So if you're using one of the Bibles that we provided there in the rows, it'll be page 1,012. We're going to look at what James wants to continue to say about not only our human relationships, but also our relationship with God. What we're going to see is that James wants to talk about conflict. Now, I know none of you ever have conflict in your lives, right? I mean, you just have perfect peace day by day, and whether you're at work or at home or out in Medford driving around, you know, now that you've passed that driving test that John was talking about last week, you just absolutely never have conflict, okay? But I'm just going to kind of take a gamble here since James brings it up in the Bible and assume that since it's in there, maybe we should still address it anyway. And you know I'm joking with you this morning, right? We all experience conflict. We experience conflict on not a weekly basis, but even a daily basis, usually from to one degree or another. You see, conflict has plagued human existence since it began. We see in the Bible from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel, from nations rising up against nation, conflict, battle, war has been a mark of our existence from the very beginning. What James is going to help us do is to understand where it comes from and how we can deal with it as followers of Jesus. One of my favorite stories from history is uh, set in about 200 BC. To be more precise, in the year 168 BC, there was a confrontation, a collision between the rising uh, power Syria, who were, they were looking to add to their assets, and so they, they marched toward Egypt, and they had began to set foot on Egyptian soil, and they were ready to take care of some business there, again, to build on the kingdom that they were trying to establish throughout the world. You see, there was only one problem with that. Big bad Syria stepped into Egyptian territory, which was under the reign of another power, a greater power, a bigger and badder power. That's bad grammar, but you get the point, all right? Rome. Rome was running the world at that point. And so the, the Roman council, Papilius, gets word of this. And so he marches on to Egypt and has a confrontation with King Antiochus IV, who had led his battle, uh, his troops into battle there. And the story goes, this is written down in the, the volumes of the historian Titus Livy, uh, who was a uh, famous historian there in Rome. And the story goes like this. Papilius confronts Antiochus IV, and he takes a stick, and he draws a circle around his feet. And he says, King Antiochus IV, the moment that you step outside of this circle, we will unleash the fury of Rome on your little army. Now, this is where we come up with the expression, at least historians tell us, we maybe can't be 100% sure, but this is where uh, the, the phrase drawing a line in the sand comes from. 
In other words, King Antiochus, if you step over this line, you are going to have trouble and you are going to have conflict. That is a move that you really want to weigh out because your desires are conflicting with my desires. And so we are about to go to war if you move another muscle. So this morning, as we think about history and and the battles that have raged from the beginning of time, really. I want us to think about our own hearts. Because as you see here, and you know this so well, not only are we really good at drawing lines in the sand in our human relationships, but we are also really good at drawing lines in the sand when it comes to our relationship with God. And so James wants to address that. He wants to uncover what's at work in these conflicts. And then James is such a good pastor. He doesn't just leave us there in the kind of difficulty and calamity of our conflict, but he actually gives us a solution in the end of our passage this morning. And so how do we deal with these battle lines that we draw on a daily basis? James is going to give us a strong encouragement to live with godly passions and pursue faithful friendship through God's grace. His first piece of instruction that we see at verse one in the first parts of verse two is, is this, that we need to address our internal desires to resolve conflict with others. Now, before we read these verses, you remember last week, James was talking about what it means to live with either heavenly wisdom, which is characterized by, by purity and peace and, and produces a harvest of righteousness, the things that belong to God and that God is pleased with. So we either live that kind of life or we live a life of earthly wisdom that is characterized by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And so John challenged us last week, hey, are you going to live with heavenly wisdom? Are you going to set aside selfish ambition so that you can set your gaze on God and live a life that's worthy of the calling that he's given to you? We see in these opening verses of chapter four that the Christians that were scattered throughout Judea in that time were not living with heavenly wisdom very consistently. He, he begins in verse one and he says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So what we see immediately when James begins, continues his argument, is that he is, he is wanting to get to the, the root of the problem. He wants to get to the cause. You saw that? What causes fights and quarrels? Why are we feuding? Do you ever ask this question? I mean, I mean, hopefully, you know, even in your conflict, you don't love it to the point where it's like, man, I don't care. I'm just going to keep engaging in conflict so I can just have a great time with this. Right now, there are consequences to every conflict that we face. And so we should be asking the question, why are we in conflict with one another? So James gets to the source. He asks the question to grab their attention. He says, is it not this? Is it not that your passion? are at war within you. You see, here's, here's the deal. A lot of people in our culture, maybe you've kind of 
thought about it in this way. They would say, you know what? Our problems in this life are purely biological. It gets to our, our DNA, how we're wired. And, and, and so we, we do what we do because that's just what's in us and kind of how we're made, how we're constituted. Other people would say it's maybe it's not purely biological, maybe it's primarily environmental and cultural, right? You know, I mean, if I didn't grow up in this way or this context or have these people surrounding me, then I wouldn't do the things that I do. But the Bible paints a different picture. The Bible says, look, yes, there may be some biological and cultural and environmental factors, but the the only reason that those hold influence in our lives is because we have sinful desires in us at our core. What happens on the outside, what comes out externally in our lives. Remember, we saw this with the tongue in James chapter 3. We saw it last week with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. All of these things, fights and quarrels, they are coming out because we have internal issues going on in our hearts. One scholar put it like this. He says, our sinful desire is the militant cause of all disturbance. Public problems have private causes. You got that? Public problems have private causes. So when you experience some public problems this week, and by the way, this is how I I just, I know how God works, all right? He's so good, he's so gracious that usually whether it's in my devotional life or what I hear on Sunday, whether I'm preaching it or someone else, is when when he starts teaching me something, he usually gives me an opportunity to live it out, you know what I'm saying? So I'm just gonna give a fair warning. You can probably expect some conflict this week, all right? Just know it's probably coming, and I hope after this morning you'll know a little bit more on how to deal with that conflict. Now, what I love about Christianity, what I love about James, what I love about Jesus is that they want to get to our hearts. They are concerned with the internal motivations of what's going on within. You see, a lot of people look at Christianity and they say, you know what, this is just about a set of behaviors, a list of do's and don'ts that I need to follow in order to kind of be approved in God's sight. And that cannot be further from the truth, my friends. You see, God wants to take everything that we are and pull us into everything that he is. So now we're talking about our thoughts, our desires, our affections. And then all of that then flows into our behaviors, how we act, what we say, what we do. So I hope you see how this works. In our hearts, we say, I want that. Okay, so just, just, just think about this kind of scenario with me. I want X. I want Y. I want Z. What is the X, Y, and Z for you today? Sometimes it's major stuff, right? Sometimes it's, man, I want that job. That's what I desire. Sometimes it's, I want that boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe you've been there before. Sometimes it's, I want respect from the people around me. 
I want recognition. Hey, did you, did you notice what a great job I did, right? Can I get a little bit of, you know, like, man, congratulations, pat on the back, you know? It's like, sometimes we want reasonable things like loyalty. Just want people to be loyal to us. I mean, it's not always even a bad thing that we desire, but sometimes our, our desires can so consume us that they become sinful and selfish, and then we're ready to go to battle because we didn't receive it, Right? Sometimes we just want people to say, I'm sorry. Maybe it's something smaller than that. Maybe it's, maybe it's sleep. I mean, you can just kind of apply this to anything in our lives, right? Whatever we desire, we can see that it has the potential to create conflict. Okay, so I have a confession to make, all right? Many of you know we had a, our third daughter on May 10th, all right? 2014, she's two months old, and Jordan is beautiful, she's precious, you would just want to eat her up, you know, and kiss on her and love her and talk to her, but you know, sometimes at 2 a.m., after Marsha's giving me like the third or fourth nudge, and it's like, tonight you're on, on the clock, all right, sometimes when I'm done feeding her the bottle, and it's time, you know, I've kind of bounced her and got her back to sleep, and then I put her down, <laughs> I mean, sometimes I'm talking to my two-month-old saying, seriously, bro? <laughs> conflict with my two-month, conflict in my heart that comes out. Sometimes we want to see, sometimes it's just petty stuff, man. What we prefer to eat, what we want to watch on TV, what we want to do on the weekend, what we want to play with. And now if we have, you know, kids, we observe kids, we know that kids are like this. They don't care about that toy until someone else grabs it, and then they want that. And it's funny how we adults often act the same way. Man, we didn't care about that, that shirt. We didn't care about those new shoes. We didn't care about having an iPad until someone else got it. And then all of a sudden, man, we, we have these selfish ambitions rising up in our heart, bitter jealousy that starts to eat away at us. So think about what X, Y, and Z are for you. And as you go through your week this week, evaluate, hey, what is it that I'm desiring in this moment that has then the potential when someone steps in the way of my desire and seeking personal gratification that it is going to collide and create conflict in our midst? If we can pinpoint our selfish desires, we will uncover the sources of conflict in our lives. And I know some of you may be saying, you know, man, James, I mean, this is a great book. It's so, it's so practical, man. I love this letter. But times like James, couldn't you lighten up just a little bit? You know, like, why do you have to be so strong in what you say? These passions are at war. You know, we desire to have, so we murder. We come into a team, so we fight and quarrel. Like, James, can't you tone it down just a little bit? I was like, James is just telling the truth. He's just quoting Jesus, who in the Sermon on the Mount just told the truth, who said, look, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I mean, Jesus was not too soft in his call to holiness and devotion to God. So this shows us how seriously we should take our human relationships. That God does not want us to experience conflict, but he wants us to experience peace, his will for our lives. We draw lines in the sand. 
And we take up arms against one another when God is calling us to wrap our arms around one another and live in peace. Now, because I know that some of you are experiencing conflict in your lives, let me give you just a few practical suggestions on how maybe you can deal with conflict when it arises in your heart. These are really simple, okay? Nothing novel about these. Number one, how about this? Pause. Just just pause and take a deep breath, right? We get so worked up when our desires come in conflict with one another that we immediately want to engage and spout off. But what if we just paused, step back for a moment? What if we maybe even prayed in that moment? Like, God, can you help me deal with this conflict that is about to bubble up. I mean, you know, it's really hard to like want to come and swing at somebody when you're praying. You know, it's like, God, please help, you you know. So just pause, relax, take a chill pill, watch your tone when you begin to get in a conflict with someone else. Number two, here's a good one. Recognize your own sin. So we need to realize, again, that there is something beneath the surface that is driving us in this moment of conflict. And if we can identify that, we can begin to deal with our own sinful hearts. Because listen, in most every conflict, it is a two-sided equation. I know we want to point the finger and say, man, look at what they have done. Look how they treated me. But chances are there is some level of ownership that we all bring into a conflict. You say, well, Tina, you don't understand. Like, I'm, I'm perfect. Well, if that's the case, in that moment, just know that the sin that they committed against you, you're capable of that same sin if you are not already have been guilty of it at some point in your life already. All right, we need to recognize our own sin. Pause, recognize our sin. Number three, this is super practical. Apply the love test. You say, what are you talking about? Where does this come from? I'm just saying, go read 1 Corinthians 13 and see what it says about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not boast. It's not rude. It's not, oh, this one hurts. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't seek its own way. Oh, this one really hurts when we're talking about conflict. It's not easily angered or easily provoked. I mean, you're saying, well, they're pushing my buttons. Like, well, why are your buttons so easy to get to? You know what I'm saying? It's like, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So just ask yourself, man, am I being patient? Am I being kind? Am I being easily angered? Yes. Number four, go to your brother or sister. And speak the truth in love. Okay, so here's here's the deal. This would be really wise and really godly of you to, to when you speak, let the first words that come out of your mouth be about yourself. Be about your own sin. Humbly confess your own wrongdoing in the situation. Or, hey, let's just be humble enough to say, you know what? Man, I don't know what's going on here, but maybe I don't have the whole story. So could you help me out with why we are having this conflict? Maybe you don't see it. Maybe you don't see your own sin. So maybe you can just have a, a hopefully a civil conversation with humility to speak the truth in love. And then after you humbly confess your own sin, then, then you can move on to sharing how you have been 
offended or wronged by that person. I know that takes courage, right? Because as John pointed out, sometimes we're not peacemakers or even peace breakers. We're just peace fakers. You know what I'm saying? We just want to run from the conflict and act like it didn't happen. But we need to be peacemakers. And the good news is this, is that when we, when we engage in conflict, when we seek to resolve our conflict in the ways that God intends for us, then we have opportunity to display the gospel in our conflict. You say, well, what do you mean by this, Tanner? Well, number one, the gospel brings two opposing sides together, and that's the message of reconciliation that we're going to look at in just a moment, how we who were once opposed to God have now been made friends of God and brought into a relationship with him. So the gospel is about reconciliation, but number two, the gospel frees us up from always having to win every conflict. You following me? Like, like, since when did having God's approval not be enough for us. I mean, it's like, God, if you're pleased with me and I'm in Christ, then I have won every single time. Like, ultimate victory is mine, so I don't have to, I don't have to win this little skirmish here. And oh, by the way, every conflict, there's always, there's always loss going on even for the one who apparently wins, right? So, so the gospel, the victory that we have in Christ should change the way that we view our conflict and hopefully motivate us to be released from it and work through it so that God is glorified in our conflict. You say, well, Tanner, what about when I do all this and people aren't willing to resolve the conflict? What, what do you do then? Well, I would say, keep praying for them. Go to them again, continue to place the ball in their court. Let them know that you are ready to love them, ready, you, you do love them, that you're ready to forgive them, that you want that forgiveness on, from, from them. And if, if that doesn't work after time, after entrusting them to God, go and take someone else that, that you trust and especially maybe that they trust and love, like Matthew 18 tells us. Have this conversation again, pray for them again. And trust them to God again. And the, the, the aim is to take care of your circle of responsibility, right? We can only do so much in the conflict. We can't control another person and their response, but we can do our part to seek peace and reconciliation with those who we may have conflict with. So James, in these first couple of verses, he, he talks about what it means to draw a line in the sand with people around us. But then he says, look, you know, don't think too highly of yourselves because you are even more audacious than this. Because not only do you draw lines in the sand when it comes to your human relationships, but you have drawn a huge line in the sand when it comes to your relationship with God. And so my second encouragement for us this morning is to address our internal desires to resolve our conflict with God. Check out the end of verse two, two and verse three. It says this, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. 
So can you see here how our sinful passions begin to even influence our relationship with God? Hey, we want things to be resolved in our life. We want God to come through and some of our desires. Well, God is our Father. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above. It seems like we read that recently, right? James 1, 17. And you say, well, well, Tanner, I know someone's thinking this and someone in James Church was thinking this. You're like, Tanner, man, I'm asking but I'm not receiving, like, what's the deal here? And so James has an answer for that. You do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. In other words, in your praying, you are so self-seeking, self-centered that God has no motivation to answer that prayer because God is too holy to answer unholy prayer. It's not the case every time. We can't draw one-to-one here, but I am willing to, to just go out on a limb and say many of your unanswered prayers have been the result of impure motives in your heart. And so really what we should do, what I should do, is thank God to say, God, thank you for not answering that prayer because that answer, if I would have received it, may have pushed me further away from you and led to my destruction. So we need to come to God with with pure prayers, with prayers that are concerned for his glory and the good of others. And yes, our own good. I mean, God's not against our good, but he wants it to be driven by a pure heart that wants what he wants for our lives. I mean, this is so important, guys. Listen, don't assume that just because we are engaging in some apparent spiritual act, that it is a true act of devotion to God. You open your Bible, that's, that's great. Who'd you do that for? You, you prayed this morning, that was nice, like, for who? Was that like, so next time you get together with your friend, I've been praying, I'll pray for you, you know, it's like, You engaged in an act of service, a good deed. You gave an encouraging word. For who? I mean, what if we just put these two words over everything we did? And I want to encourage us to, as a church, I mean, what happens to Redemption Hill Church if we take these two words and we place it on everything that we do? I mean, practical example, I mean, maybe I bring it up too much, but, you know, like doing the dishes at home. All right, this is just me, all right? You, you know, you do you, I'll do me. We're all trying to do him. That was another sermon. But you, you feel me? All right, I've, since the last year, man, T. Turrell's been in the, the kitchen, you know what I'm saying? I've been doing my thing more frequently than maybe in years past. And so, so when I do that, you know what I want? She, she over there, can she see what I'm doing here? You know what I'm saying? Like, I know she just walked by and she's busy, but can she not hear these pots and pans clanging here? I need, to, I need to work a little harder, you know what I'm saying, man? Just get this thing going because at the end of the day, man, I want her to see what I'm doing more than I want to see God to see what I'm doing. And this happens in all kinds of instances in our lives. But what if we, we just said, God, man, before I, I came to church today, I'm coming not for for the people around me or so the people like, you know, I won't ask, hey, where were you this week? You know, like, this is what Christians do. Like, we care about one another. It's like, hey, where were you on Sunday? And like, I was hanging out, just playing some PlayStation. You know, like, we don't want to say that. So, you know what I'm saying? 
Like for who? Why do we come? Why do we pray? Why do we worship? Why do we sing? Why do we hear from the word? It's all for him. This wasn't the case for the Christians in James Church. They were praying with selfish motives and you say, okay, well, I, I get that and there are twisted desires at work when we pray, but then it's like it just kind of gets even more serious than all of that because in James uh, chapter four, verse four, he drops a spiritual bomb on his congregation and he says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so here, here we go again. Okay, James is going like, man, I'm going to give you the two strongest images that I can find, adultery and rebellion. And he says, look, this is characterizing your life when you live in open, unrepentant rebellion against God. You see, first, adultery, God's relationship with his people throughout history has been compared to that of a marriage. We're actually wed to God when we are saved by his grace, when he pursues us and, and brings us into his life of salvation. And so now we belong to him. We're united with him. And so it's not surprising that in the Old Testament, although it makes some of us kind of feel uncomfortable, like, man, that's in the Bible. It's like, well, that's what's going on spiritually in, in people's hearts. They are committing spiritual adultery against God. So Jeremiah 5, 7, God says to his people, Israel, how can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. And then some of you are thinking, well, you know, like that's the Old Testament, man. Like that's the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is so much nicer than that. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. John 10, 30. So then when we read in Matthew 12, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. So God the Father and God the Son, they share one heart on this. When we live in open, unrepentant rebellion against God, it is like spiritual adultery. Let me, just, let me just ask this. Does, this. does this make you uncomfortable? Does this seem unpleasant to you? If it does, let me just ask you this. I mean, if it makes you unpleasant to the point of kind of taking issue with Jesus, let me just ask you this. When you go to the doctor and he says, the blood test show that you are deathly sick. And if we do not do something about this, you are going to die. Is anyone like upset with the doctor at that point? Are we mad? No, because he's given us a true diagnosis. So why then do we balk at Jesus when he gives us this true diagnosis to say, man, when you are living like this, you are committing spiritual adultery in your hearts against me. 
What we need to do is listen to God's word and receive God's word and not stand in judgment over God and his word because God will not be judged. God, forgive us for judging you and your word. He doesn't stop there, though. He says, if you wish to be a friend of the world, you have made yourself an enmity, an enemy of God. You have enmity in your heart. So it's not just spiritual adultery, but it's spiritual rebellion. We have forsaken God in his ways. We said that God made us for himself. He made us to have a relationship, to be in friendship with him. I mean, that's really good news. Okay, you can like put a smile on your face there at this point because, I mean, we, we want to, to be able to know God and God wants that with us. He wants to have friendship. That's good news. The bad news is, is that we all have gone astray from his ways. We have all rebelled against God. The Bible calls this sin. Our sin has separated us from God. For the wages of sin is death. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. This is what's true of us apart from God's grace. And so what has to happen at conversion, listen, listen to this. In the final interview that he ever gave, C.S. Lewis said this describing his conversion. He said, at the conversion moment, what I heard God saying was this, put down your gun and we'll talk. Put down your gun and we'll talk. In other words, C.S., you have been living in open rebellion against me in your thoughts and the way that you've lived your life. You've turned away from me. And so what you need to do is lay down your weapons, lay down your arms, and let's then talk about how we can be reconciled. And the good news is, is that God has made a way for every person, even if now you sit on the other side of the line and you are in enmity with God. That means you hold deep hostility in your heart toward God. You say, well, man, I don't feel that way. Even if I haven't accepted Christ, well, you may not feel that way, but that's the reality. So if you've never received God's grace in this truth of Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were uh, rebelling against God, Christ died for us. Christ died to bring us back, to reconcile us to God, to redeem us from our slavery to sin to give us a new life when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, to make us friends when we were once enemies of his. So there are times in our lives when we can kind of revert back to these old ways and rebel against God. And James wants to grab the attention of these believers and say, look, if that's what's going on, then you need to come back to Christ and repent. Jesus wants 100% of our lives and devotion to him. And let me just, let me just say this, okay? It's beautiful news that, that Christ wants to be our friend. He says in John 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master is doing. Instead, I've called you friends. So there's this intimacy, there's this knowledge, there's this relationship, there's this togetherness and unity that Jesus desires to have with every single one of you. And so when we start to taste and see how good God is, 
and we start to experience this friendship with God. Then what happens is, I love this, our desires start to change to the point that we see that, man, when we sin against God, when we have impurity in our hearts, that disrupts our fellowship with God. Okay, we can, once we're in Christ, that, that relationship can never be totally severed. But it can be disrupted. It can be uh, shaken up by our sin. And so when we see that God desires for this intimate relationship to be sustained, to continue, to be consistent, to be persevered in by us, then we start to understand the truth of Matthew 5 eight. I love this verse. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let me say that again. I said it too fast. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you see the connection? A pure heart? What comes with a pure heart is the blessing of seeing more of who God is. There's a deeper knowledge, deeper relationship with God. And this is what we were made for. This is our greatest need. And so James is putting forth such strong language. I know this may have been a, a tough sermon to hear, okay? But, but, but we need to hear it, right? Blows the, the wound, cleanse away evil when they come from God. That's a proverb. All right, so, so why is James giving us this strong language? He's giving us this strong language so that we will be brought to our senses, so that we will wake up and return to God. And that's going to be next week's sermon. We're going to give a lot of practicals on what repentance looks like, but it begins here in verses 5 and 6. You say, what is the solution then to our drawing lines in the sand against one another and lines in the sand against God. How do we deal with this? And here is the solution in verses five and six. It's simply this, receive grace from our jealous God. Receive grace from our jealous God. Look at verse five. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. That's why it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Okay, so, so listen, for, for every piece of our rebellion against God, every piece of our acts of unfaithfulness and infidelity against God, even for all of our conflict against one another, there is a twofold solution that James lays out here. And the first piece is this, just recognize the jealousy of God for your devotion. I mean, God wants all of you he wants all of your thoughts, all of your actions, all of your desires to be in line with his desires for your life. And so this is amazing truth. It says he yearns jealously over us. God is so concerned about his own glory, but also what's in it for us, what's good for us, that he wants us to come back to him again and again and again so that we can show how much we love him. James seems to be referring when he says the scripture says he seems to be referring just to the the whole kind of tenor of the old testament okay we won't see these specific words in any verse but we'll see a lot of verses about how god is jealous for his people he's jealous for 
his own glory. And so because he made us to be in relationship with himself, he is jealous when we live outside of the intentions of this relationship. But not only that, not only should we recognize God's jealousy for our devotion, number two, simply this, we should receive his grace. I love the first five words of James 4, 6. I mean, these are worthy of not only our memorization, because that would be really easy since it's only five words, but they are worthy of our meditation, okay? So we have a meta-memo verse every week, okay? Just, it's on the worship guide here. It means meditate, memorize is a verse that we want to think about again and again and again. And we made it really easy this week because they're just these five words. But he gives more grace. Is that not good news? God gives more grace in spite of my rebellion against him, in spite of my infidelity toward him and others. He gives more grace. It's grace that draws us into a relationship with God. It's grace that strengthens us so that we can live our lives for God. It's grace that causes us to want to make peace with others and live in faithfulness to God and his commands. How can we live an all-day, everyday kind of Christian life, which is what God desires from us and what we should want more than anything else? It's these two words, more grace. I mean, if you do not see that you need God's grace every single day of your life, you are setting yourself up for a great fall. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I'm just going to say this every time I preach for a while, okay? (laughs) Blessed are the what? The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So so let let me just explain this, okay? If you do not see how spiritually impoverished, impoverished you are, if you don't see how spiritually bankrupt you are before God, I mean, you're not going to stand before God one day and he's going to say, man, look at what you brought me. I mean, your bags are like empty, all right? We have nothing to bring God in and of ourselves. He doesn't need us. We need him. So when we see how broken, how impoverished we are before God, how much we need him and his grace, that's what enables us to to experience love and forgiveness and holiness and purity and all of these things that God wants from our lives. And this is what brings us the greatest joy. So, so, So today, like, could you just ask God to say, like, God, Help me to see that I truly am poor in spirit. Because it's the poor in spirit that have the kingdom of heaven. It's like, man, I want to be on God's side. I want to be his friend. I want to be in his kingdom. Well, how does, like, step one is seeing that you don't have it in and of yourself and to come to him and say, God, I need you. I need your grace. I need salvation because I can never save myself. I need your grace because I can never work through this conflict in my own strength. So just let these verses of Scripture not only shake the foundation of your heart, but also bring comfort to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For what did you receive 
What do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7, another one of my favorite verses. What do you have that you did not receive? And then John the Baptist in John 3. A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Do you see this? We come to God. We admit our brokenness before him. We say, God, I can't do it. I can't be in a right relationship with you apart from your grace and your salvation. And maybe some of you need to cry out to God and say that to get days like, God, I can see that I have not lived my life for you and I wanna turn back and experience true salvation and true life that you desire to give. So whether it's for the first time, as we often say, that we need God's grace, or whether it's for the 10th, the 20th, the 30th thousand time that we come to God and say, God, I need more of your grace. Man, this is exactly what God wants from us because here's the good news. God never runs out of his supply of grace. He gives and 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 he gives. So will we receive it? God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Let's bow our heads. And let's just kind of drown out anything that might distract us. And let's just just speak with God just for a moment. If if you would, just if, if, if the Spirit's leading you to humble yourself before God, would you humble yourself before God and say, God, you know what? I see that there are many times, perhaps all my life, I have lived in open rebellion against you. And I need your grace. God, in these moments, as people pray to themselves, Lord, would you show us how great our need is for you? But also, God, would you show us how great the provision you have made in Christ is on our behalf? God, I know we need to lay down our our arms today. So Lord, would you show us where we have conflict with a brother or sister, we have conflict with people just out in, in, in the world. Lord, where we have conflict with you. Help us in, in humility to come to you and say, God, would you give me grace to pursue reconciliation with them with you. And Lord, your promises are great. We can't look at the cross of Christ and not see that you've made every provision for our brokenness, our sin, our rebellion. Lord, we say thank you for giving us Jesus, for sending him to die in our place, for giving us life in him, Lord, to to be raised with him 
to have the hope of eternal life with him, Lord. It's, there's no greater news than this. And so, Father, we pray that today as we draw near to you, as we come back to you, God, that you would work these things in our hearts to the point where we just can continue to sing, Lord, I am not the same. All we have is Christ. All of our life belongs to you. We surrender ourselves to you today. We pray in Christ's name.